Well, amen. That uh, man, praise God. That's a, that's a wonderful thing, welcoming new members, uh, worshiping the Lord together. That unified voice, just praising the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be encouraging. That's one of the reasons we sing. It's not just to worship God, but it's to encourage the brothers and sisters beside you. That is your vocal testimony here on Sunday morning. So hopefully that was encouraging to you. Uh, We are in the book of Acts. I'm preaching through Acts, and I made a mistake in the bulletin uh, with the sermon text. We are now in Acts 18, starting in verse 18. Acts 18, uh, starting in verse 18, we'll read here in just a second. Uh, Typically what we do here in this church is we do preach through books of the Bible. We feel like that's healthy uh, for a church to do that. We try to hit all the passages, even the hard ones along the way. I try to let Pastor Thomas preach those. Uh, But that's what we typically do. And this book of Acts is giving us, it's Luke who wrote it, and he's giving us the facts of what happened after Jesus ascended back to heaven. Jesus came to earth, he lived, died, rose again for the sins of the world. He ascended to heaven, and Luke then tells us what happened next as the, the, the message about Christ began to spread. And in this text, at this point in Acts, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he will now finish his second missionary trip here in this book. He's been traveling around to new areas, telling people about Jesus, and Paul will now finish that second trip. And then, just a few verses later here in this passage, Paul will now head out on his third and final missionary trip here in Acts. That's where we're at. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll read. Well, Father, we just lift our hearts to you in the name of Jesus Christ. We believe that you are one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you are the maker of heaven and earth. You have spoken all things into being out of nothing by the word of your power. We believe, Father, that you are here Jesus, you promised wherever two or more gathered in your name, you would be there in their midst. We believe that you are now here. And we look to you, Father, now and ask for your help in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. We know if we look at the scriptures just on our own, we will get nothing. Black words on a white page. But under the ministry of your Holy Spirit, enlightening our hearts, we begin to see great truth and find life in Christ in the Scriptures. So we ask for your help here this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Starting in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth, where he was, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had his... He had cut his hair, for he he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed And went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. Many people, when they think of a church, they think of a church as kind of like a hospital. It's kind of like this hospital where a handful of Christians in the church are the doctors. The pastors, the ministry leaders, they're the ones who do the ministry in the church. They're the ones who provide the care, who build up and strengthen the others there. And the other Christians in the church then are basically just patients. They're basically just there to receive the ministry, to to be cared for, to be built up, or to be strengthened by those doctors. And that's how a lot of people view the church. It's kind of like a hospital, but that is not a biblical model of church. In a biblical church, everyone is both a patient and a doctor. Every Christian in this church including the pastors, including the ministry leaders, all who are now truly following Christ in faith, we are all still patients. All still need to receive ministry, need to be cared for. We need to be built up. We we need to be strengthened. No one here has graduated from grace and no longer needs help from the others in the body of Christ. Every Christian here is still a patient and Every Christian here is also a doctor. No matter where you are in your Christian journey, Jesus has called you into Christian ministry. You know, we often think that it's only the pastors in a local church who are the ministers. You come to the door, and who are the ministers of the church? Well, it's Pastor Brad or it's Pastor Thomas. But again, that's just not a biblical view of the church. Ephesians 4.12 says that all the saints, all the believers do the work of the ministry. You, Christian, in some way have been called to Christian ministry. Paul Tripp talks about the every person, every day ministry in a local church. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about how one Christian plants, another Christian waters, but God gives the growth or the increase. God is the one who ultimately causes this plant called the church to, to grow, but all Christians are called to work on this plant, the local church, all Christians called to strengthen other Christians. And man, in this text that we just read right here, that principle, Christians strengthening Christians, we see it all through this text. We see it three times, in fact, three different Christians or groups of Christians that then strengthen other Christians, Christians strengthening Christians. I want want to show them to you here on the screen, the three things we'll look at this morning. Christians strengthening Christians. We see it first here with the Apostle Paul, strengthening Christians. Then we see it with Priscilla and Aquila, strengthening Christians. And finally then we see it 
with Apollos, strengthening other Christians. And the first person we see do it here, point number one, is Paul. In the previous passage, the Apostle Paul was in Corinth, in Greece. And Paul was there in Corinth for over 18 months, probably closer to two years. But Paul now is heading back toward home. I'll show you a map here. Paul now leaves Corinth there on the left side of the screen. He then goes to Centria, which was about eight miles away, port city that kind of served Corinth. And Paul then sails 250 miles in this text to Ephesus for a brief stay there. He then sails another 620 miles over to Caesarea. Verse 22 says that he paid a quick visit to the church, probably there in Jerusalem, most likely seeing the other apostles there. And then, verse 22, Paul makes this 280-mile trek north up to Antioch, which was Paul's home church. It was a church that originally sent Paul out on this long missionary trip back in Acts chapter 15. And when Paul gets back to Antioch, he has now completed his second missionary trip here in Acts, four years in all that Paul has been away now from Antioch. And a couple things to note um, with Paul's journey back home here. You know, it's interesting, you go through um, this book and Luke, who wrote it, he doesn't often give personal details, but in verse 18, he tells us that Paul actually got a haircut. Uh, in verse 18, and listen, if you didn't read the next couple of verses, you'd think, man, Paul just wanted to look good for his buddies back home. He looks in the mirror, thought, I can't go home like this. Great barber shop down in Centria, let's go. But that's not the reason he actually got a haircut. Verse 18 says he was under a vow. Now, the Bible talks about vows at different times, primarily back in the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible. The, the vows were, were basically just promises that people made to God. Those of you who are married, you, you stood up on your wedding day, you made vows to your spouse before God. Well, these vows in the Bible were vows made to God. There were different types of vows. There were vows of devotion, where a person simply promised to God that he or she would do, um, um, would do certain things for a certain period of time. Or there were also vows of thanksgiving, where a person simply promise to give thanks to God for a certain period of time for some sort of blessing that God had given to them. Now listen, people were under no obligation in the Bible to make these vows to God. Uh, God never commanded that people make these extra biblical promises to him. They were completely voluntary. Christians today are under no obligation to make extra biblical vows to God. Now, you may set your heart to do certain things for a certain time, but there's nothing in Scripture that says that you have to make vows. We are called by God to simply obey the Scriptures. And vows would be extra-biblical things. You're under no obligation as a Christian to do that. And, you know, with Paul here, there's some ideas for what he was doing with this vow and why, but the bottom line is we really don't know. We don't know what kind of vow this was that Paul was under. We don't know why Paul did it here, but one thing we know is that his haircut in verse 18 signaled the end of his vow. 
That is how people demonstrated publicly that they had fulfilled a vow to God. They would cut all their hair off, which means, I guess, that I am perpetually fulfilling vows to God because I'm perpetually cutting all of my hair off. You can just think of your pastor like this. Man, this guy just fulfills vows to God all of the time. What a great guy. And, and, and really, though, you picture Paul, this is what he would have looked like as he sailed away from um, uh, Centria. And just a little side note, one of the reasons Paul probably did this vow was to help himself with his ministry to the Jews. The Jews believed in showing vows to God, and they thought Paul was anti-God, anti-Old Testament. He wasn't. He just believed it was all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul was wise, and he would become all things to all people in order to win some. So if he has to shave his head and go through vows in order to win the Jews to Christ, he would. Which is probably one of the reasons he goes, when he goes to Ephesus that the Jews there ask him to stay. Because they can see something about him. That he had just fulfilled a vow to God. That's one thing to note on his trip here. Another thing to note on Paul's trip home here is that he was traveling for a time with two friends of his. Priscilla and Aquila. You may remember them from last week. Uh, Paul met this married Christian couple back in Corinth, where he's been for the last couple of years. He met them at the start of Acts 18. And Paul stayed with Priscilla and Aquila there in Corinth for maybe up to two years or more. And Paul worked with them because we saw earlier in Acts 18, they were all, all three of them were tent makers or leather workers by trade. He stayed with them and worked with them. And listen, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he lived with these people, these these Christians, for probably two years. I guarantee that Paul, in that two-year period, had strengthened Priscilla and Aquila in their Christian walks. He had discipled them. They were probably new believers when they met the Apostle Paul. He then lived with them for two years. And probably every meal was strengthening them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just see it right there, this principle of Christian strengthening Christians. And Paul has now taken Priscilla and Aquila with them as he sailed to Ephesus. And listen, Paul took them, I believe, for a reason. Look at verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he, Paul, left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue there in Ephesus and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay, probably because of his nice haircut, for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus, leaving Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And listen, it's just important to catch here. For the next couple of chapters now here in Acts, this city of Ephesus will take center stage. This city is now Paul's next major target, a huge city, strategic city for the spread of Christianity. But Paul, for some reason, cannot stay now. He has to make it home to Antioch. For some reason, maybe trying to beat the winter here, sail home before winter. So what does Paul do in the meantime? Well, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Two Christians 
that he had most likely discipled, strengthened for some two years. And why does Paul leave them in Ephesus? Well, probably so that they can now do the same, so that they can now disciple or strengthen other Christians there in Ephesus, which Priscilla and Aquila will do, as we'll see in just a minute. And Paul then heads home to Antioch, and he's now finished his second missionary journey here in Acts. But just a short time later, Paul heads out again on his third and final trip in Acts. And what does Paul do when he starts this third trip of his? Look at verse 23. After spending some time there, back home in Antioch, he departed. And he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul, just catch what's going on here with Paul. Paul Paul heads back out now to the churches he started earlier in the book of Acts, and he now strengthens, he builds up those Christians in that area. So what have we seen Paul doing throughout this entire text here? This is a Christian strengthening other Christians. Paul starting with Priscilla and Aquila, most likely strengthening them, and then Paul strengthening those other Christians up in Galatia and Phrygia, a Christian strengthening Christians. That's number one, first time we see it with Paul, and we then see the exact same principle here, number two, with Priscilla and Aquila, who are still back in Ephesus where Paul left them. Look at verse 24. Here's what happens now back in Ephesus. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And and just pause right here. This guy, Apollos, he will now become a major player in the book of Acts and in other biblical books. Paul in 1 Corinthians. So Paul later writes a letter, 1 Corinthians, back to the Corinthians. And Paul will talk about Apollos multiple times. Martin Luther actually believed that this guy Apollos was the one who wrote the book of Hebrews in the Bible. Which is possible. Verse 24 says Apollos was a Jew by birth. From Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria at this time was just this very uh, important, very intellectual city in Egypt. Uh, Alexandria had the biggest library in the world back at this time. Uh, Alexandria produced some great scholars like Philo, this great Jewish philosopher. It was actually back in Alexandria where the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, had been produced. 200 years before this right here. And this guy, Apollos, Luke just told us several things about Apollos. Verse 24, Luke says he was eloquent. The, the, the Greek there could also mean he was learned or he was cultured coming from this great city of Alexandria or he was very well spoken and probably all of that with Apollos. Uh, Apollos back in Alexandria had probably been raised on Aristotle's great work called rhetoric 
And Apollos now knew how to speak. Uh, very well spoken, eloquent. And verse 24, he was also competent, Luke says, in the, the scriptures. Which back then, when you read the word scriptures in the Bible, it's referring to the Old Testament books. And Apollos was competent in those Old Testament scriptures. The Greek there could be translated as he was powerful. Or he was strong in the scriptures. This guy knew his Bible. At least the Bible that had been produced up to this date, the New Testament had not yet been written. He knew his Bible. Just so important for Christians today to be competent, to be strong in the scriptures. John brought us uh, he was one of the founders of Southern Seminary. Uh, he wrote one of the most influential books on preaching, um, required in all seminaries. I read it in seminary. And John brought us nine days before he passed away. He was actually teaching a seminary class, and he said this. He said, gentlemen, if this were the last time I should ever be permitted to address you, I would consume the whole hour endeavoring to impress upon you these two things, true piety and, like Apollos, to be men mighty in the Scriptures. And John Broaddus then paused and looked at his class and he just kept repeating, mighty in the Scriptures, mighty in the Scriptures, mighty in the Scriptures. And he passed away nine days later. Just so important for every Christian to be competent, to be mighty, to be powerful in the Scriptures. To be mighty in the Scriptures. And that was Apollos. And, verse 25, he'd also been instructed, Luke says, in the way of the Lord. Which in Acts is Luke's word for Jesus. He'd been instructed in the ways of Jesus. So Apollos, a Jew by birth, was most likely now a Christian, instructed in the ways of Jesus. He knows now that Jesus is the true Messiah in the Old Testament, God's one and only Savior. Apollos probably knows now about God's work of salvation in and through Jesus, that, that Jesus died. He rose again for our sins. Apollos probably knows now that people need to turn to Jesus in repentance and trust in Jesus in faith in order to be forgiven by the one and only true God. And verse 25 Luke says Apollos was also fervent in spirit. The Greek word meaning to boil, to be hot, to be stirred up emotionally, to burn inside. That was Apollos, fervent in spirit. This guy, this guy had zeal. As we might say. And I guarantee when this guy spoke, he spoke with great emotion. He spoke with great intensity. Aristotle, back in his work called Rhetoric. Aristotle said a person needed three things to be an effective speaker. One, a person needed logos, which meant word. 
A person needed a truthful word to speak. And two, that person also needed ethos. That person needed an ethical life that helped people to believe that what that person was saying was true. And number three, Aristotle said that a person needed pathos, needed passion. The person had to believe deeply that the word that he or she was speaking was true, had to believe it. And Apollos apparently had pathos. He had passion, something that every preacher needs. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous Welsh minister um, back in the 1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones defined preaching as logic on fire. You have the logic, the logos on your lips, the Word of God, but you also have a fire, a pathos in your belly. And for all preachers, the ethos, the ethical life is also critical. And Apollos had that fire in his belly, fervent in spirit. But please listen to me. This fervency that Apollos had here, that is not just something that every preacher needs. Fervency is something that every Christian needs. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he says it himself. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12, 11. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, Christians. Be fervent in spirit. Exact same Greek phrase that Luke used here for Apollos. God is saying there in the book of Romans that all Christians should have a fervency in their hearts. Should boil at times, should to some degree, but be, be hot, be stirred up emotionally, burning inside when you come here on Sunday mornings. Or when you interact with others out between Sundays in your own life. Now listen, that this fervency of spirit in Christians, it will look different from one Christian to, to the next. A, listen, a, a, a Swedish fervency probably looks a little different than, say, a Latino uh, fervency. Now, it's there, the fervency, but it will look drastically different. For some of you Swedes, a burning, white-hot Christianity is, ooh, praise the Lord. That is white-hot, and so you just go for it, man. You just burn for the Lord there, and we will try to recognize that when we hear it and see it and just commend you for your fervency. But please don't let your ethnicity be an excuse for you to be indifferent and apathetic and slothful and lukewarm and cold in your Christianity. Do not play that Norwegian-Swedish card at the expense of a true Holy Spirit birth fervency in your heart. God has just commanded every Christian, Romans 12, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. When you come here on a Sunday morning or in your own life, there is no room for an ongoing coldness, apathy, indifference, 
in the Christian life. Now listen, we all feel that at times. All of us go through that. And that's okay. God is gracious and he's tender and he's compassionate. But when you do feel cold in your heart, ask the Lord to help you to stir up your affections again for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, you then fan into flames the gift that lies within you. You, by the grace of God, fan into flames the gift that lies within you. Apollos was fervent in spirit. And the last thing Luke says here about Apollos, verse 26, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he's there in Ephesus and this guy's teaching correctly about Jesus as the Messiah and about his death and about his resurrection. He's teaching correctly, most likely, that you have to repent and trust in Jesus alone in order to enter into a a true relationship with the living God. But verse 26 adds that Apollos knew at this point only the baptism of John. So John the Baptist, who was, was, was a little bit older than Jesus, who ministered before Jesus, John the Baptist had preached in Israel a baptism of repentance. John called Jews in Israel to turn from their sin in repentance, and John then baptized them, and it was a visible sign only of their repentance, that they were turning away from sin and back to God. And at this point in time, Apollos knew nothing. He knew nothing yet of the baptism Jesus had now commanded. After his death and resurrection, a baptism for all Christians to be baptized now in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is a visible sign of one's union with Jesus by faith. Which we saw up here last Sunday, several getting baptized in the name of Jesus. So I want you to pause and just catch the picture with Apollos here for a second. This man was fervent. White hot inside. He's probably a Christian, most likely. Genuine faith in Christ. He's speaking accurately about Jesus apart from this baptism issue. He's preaching accurately about Jesus, and yet his knowledge, to some degree, is still deficient. He he still has some information gaps here when it comes to, to baptism. And in one regard, Apollos is like every single Christian in this room. Every single Christian here, to some degree, you have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And you're still growing in knowledge. And if you think you've arrived and you no longer need to grow in knowledge, we need to have a talk uh, after the service. You're still growing in knowledge. You still have information gaps. All of us do. And what do we see here now with this guy Apollos? Well, Priscilla and Aquila help him. And what do we see with it again? It's just Christians strengthening Christians. Again, you look at verse 26. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So there he is, Apollos, boldly. And you can just catch this guy. Preaching Christ to Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, can't you just picture him like in the back? In the back row and they hear him and he's talking about baptism. And they're like, 
Well, we like his fervency. We like everything else he said about Jesus. And they take him aside, it says, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. That's pretty cool. Luke says up in 20, verse 25, that Apollos already taught accurately concerning Jesus. But now, verse 26, Luke says this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, now explain to Apollos more accurately the, the ways of God concerning baptism and so on. And man, did you see how they did it? It's just so great what Priscilla and Aquila do here. Took Apollos aside, Luke says. Took Apollos aside. Some translations say to their home. Away from the crowds out of the public eye and instruct him privately. And it's just such grace and gentleness from this couple. Couple that might have been older than him, but it's just so gracious, so gentle. Man, they don't want to kill this young man's fire. I mean, if you want to kill a man's fire, come on. They love this guy's fervency. They want to protect it. They don't want to shame him. So it took him aside. Nice meal, maybe, at their home. Got to, to know this young man. Encouraged him, I'm sure. Please hear me on this. If you're going to correct somebody, please affirm as well. It's hard for all of us to do, but that affirmation makes that correction so much easier to swallow. If you're not affirming people and all you do is correcting people, you're creating a very acidic environment. There has to be the affirmation. I'm sure there was in this room with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, with with Apollos there, uh, affirming him and then gently, I would imagine, teaching, correcting him concerning baptism and maybe a couple other issues. Man, you, you know how it goes. Some Christians... It's like they're just waiting for other Christians to say something a little bit off and then just pounce. Just pounce. And try to do it publicly if you can. Correct that person right there in front of other people or maybe you don't correct that person right there. You just go off and gossip to other Christians about this thing that was off, you think, that this guy said. And that is not love. That, that, that typically means you're just trying to one-up another Christian. Swollen with your own importance. But man, that, I think, with Priscilla and Aquila is, is a picture of love. The way you correct someone. Take them aside, away from the crowd, speaking only to that person. Gracious, uh, affirming, gentle, I'm sure. And helping that person to see more clearly. And you know, the, 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 the indication here in this text is that Apollos received it humbly. You know one of the greatest tests of Christian maturity? How do you receive correction when it's brought to you graciously and, and gently? Do you ever receive correction? Or... How do you receive it when other Christians just say no to you? 
your life group maybe, or some church leader, you think it should be done this way, and they don't agree, and they, they say no, how do you then respond? Because it's so easy to say we're unified until there's some sort of correction, or somebody says no, and then what happens? It reveals a ton about a person's true colors. Do you know that one of the primary qualifications for leadership in any church, one of the primary qualifications for leadership in this church, one thing that says you're ready to lead God's people in some way, you know what it is? Teachability. Are you really teachable? Can you receive feedback, instruction, correction? Can you receive the word no without going and grumbling and complaining to other people? It's a mark of humility, this teachability. And it seems that Apollos here was teachable. He received very humbly, it seems, this correction. And just pause amazing when you think about what just happened here. Remember what Luke said about Apollos. He was eloquent, educated, cultured in this big city of Alexandria. He was powerful, competent in the scriptures. He was fervent. He was a very capable man, and yet Apollos is now essentially sitting at the feet of two older tent makers, receiving instruction. The very picture of humility. And get back to the theme of our text here. What do we see here again now with Priscilla and Aquila as they help Apollo? It's just Christians strengthening Christians. Yet again, the same as earlier. Started with Paul, number one, strengthening other Christians like Priscilla and Aquila. And they now, Priscilla and Aquila, number two, they strengthen a disciple, Apollos. And in the final part of this text, what do we see? Number three. It's the exact same principle, again, with Apollos now. If you look at verse 27. And when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So this Apollos, he, he, he now wants to go to Achaia. And Achaia is where Corinth was, where Priscilla and Aquila and Paul had just been. He wants to go back to Corinth. And verse 27 said the Christian in Ephesus now encourage Apollos to go. And that probably includes Priscilla and Aquila. They've worked with Apollos, and now Apollos says, I want to go back to Corinth and minister there. And they're like, Go. Go, and they're encouraging him now to, to spread his wings and to use this newfound knowledge and to use his gifts back in Corinth. They're unleashing Apollos to do what he's been called by God and trained now by other Christians to do. And man, Apollos does it. He, he goes back to Corinth and verse 28 says, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. And the Greek means he overwhelmed them in argument. 
Don't you just love, Christian, having someone on your side like that? Educated, intelligent, eloquent, knows the scriptures, faithful person who can contend with others for the truth of the scriptures. And man, that was Apollos now. Verse 28 says he was proving to the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And Apollos now with this powerful preaching in Corinth, back in Corinth with this preaching, what did that preaching do for the Christians back in Corinth? Look at the end of verse 27 again. Apollos greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Those Christians now back in Corinth strengthened by Apollos. People whom Paul had earlier discipled. They're in Corinth. Paul will later write this about Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. He says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And listen, what do we see there then? With with Apollos, once again, it's Christianing, strengthening Christians. It's just just all through this text. And listen, can you see the trickle-down effect here in this text? Can you see it? Some of you may remember Ronald Reagan used to talk about trickle-down economics. Uh, well, this is, I don't know if it ever trickled down to me, but some of you might have got that. Uh, but this is trickle-down discipleship. Paul, just connect the dots, strengthens Priscilla and Aquila, who then strengthen Apollos, who then strengthens all these Christians back in Corinth. And the people who did all of this strengthening along this line, you know, all, only one of them was a big-name apostle. The others was just ordinary, no-name Christians. An older married couple, this probably a, a, a single young man, maybe. No-name people. But what each of them had received from other Christians, they just faithfully then passed it along to new Christians. Trickle down discipleship from one to the next to the next. Christians strengthening Christians. And listen, that's how this thing still works today. That, that this principle is still alive and well in God's church. Listen, there is no church that is a hospital or shouldn't be where there are just a handful of so-called doctors, professionals, who do all the ministry, who give all the care, build up, strengthen others, and everybody else is just a patient. No, in a biblical church, we are all both patients and doctors. We're all patients. We all still need ministry. We need to be strengthened by other people around us. We're all patients. None of us have graduated from grace. And yet, we are also Every Christian here in this room called by God to be a sort of doctor in the church, to give ministry, to to do the work of the ministry, to care for other believers in the local church. You, Christian, you, you have the unique privilege, you have the honor of doing the work of the ministry. You've been called by Christ to strengthen the disciples around you. And listen, it's just what Jesus did for you. 
You know, you think about it. Jesus in heaven, infinitely strong, (laughs) didn't need to come to earth. Yet he did, and he gave of himself in order that you, Christian, who were weak in sin, might be strengthened. And Jesus now, he just keeps strengthening you. But listen, you're, you're, you're not a passive consumer in the body of Christ. Just called by Christ to receive and nothing more. No, Jesus now looks at you and he says, now go and do likewise. You, Christian, now you go and you give of yourself like me to strengthen the people around you. And listen, that's what we want to be about in this local church. We want to be about strengthening one another in this church. That's how God causes the church to grow. One person plants, another waters, but God gives the growth or the increase. God is the one who ultimately causes our church to grow in healthy ways, but we are all called to work. Some planting, some watering, God giving the growth. And listen, and we want to do that in this church. You Christian, you, you, look around you. You have a responsibility for the Christian sitting next to you in the seat this morning. You have a responsibility for the Christian in your life group. Even the ones you don't like. And that will happen at times. You're being sanctified through that. But you have a responsibility even there to serve the Christians around you. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in the body of Christ, just you and your personal Jesus. That doesn't work. You were saved into a body, the church, and what an honor it is to be able to work now to strengthen the members of this body. We just welcome the members in here. All of you, you, you other Christians, you saw them standing up here. It's your responsibility to strengthen them. It's their responsibility now to help strengthen us and to strengthen one another. So man, let's, let's aim to do it. In, in our life groups, it's a great place for you to strengthen other believers. Or just in your personal interactions with other believers in this church family. Or youth. You youth here in this church. Those of you who now trust in Christ, you don't have to wait to your certain age to begin to strengthen the believers around you. You find the other believing youth in this church and you look to strengthen them. They need your strength. You need their strength. And you can do it by God's grace. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to do it. Just look to encourage others in their faith. Look around Christ Redeemer Church. Look to strengthen your brothers and sisters. Be ready to listen to them. To really listen to the people around you. And to be present when you're listening to them. Be ready to care for them. Be be, be ready to pray for them. To comfort encourage be ready to affirm them be ready to uh, to correct them when needed graciously and gently just make sure you're also receiving correction or don't you dare correct be ready to share scripture to people beside you be ready to open your home to them be ready to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And there are people weeping in our body. Be ready to weep with them. And most importantly, Christ Redeemer Church, be ready to remind your brothers and sisters relentlessly of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who though he was strong, he gave of himself to strengthen you, me, who were weak. Now, let's go in his footsteps and do the same. Christians, strengthening Christians by the grace of God. Father, we bless you. We ask for your help in doing this now. We believe, Lord, you have given us this part of your word for a reason. There's a principle here that we can tease out. We can see all through this. Not Lone Ranger Christians here, just them and their personal Jesus. Not, not people just passively consuming things about Christ, but never actively doing anything. But we see here in this text this principle of Christians or of disciples strengthening other Christians or disciples. We thank you for that privilege. It is an honor, Father, to do that. We believe that is because you, Lord Jesus, you now live in the body of Christ. And you, Jesus, you who've always worked to strengthen other people, you're now working in and through us, the body of Christ, to strengthen the body of Christ. One man planting, one woman watering, one child planting, one child watering, and God, you giving the glorious increase, the growth in the body of Christ. So Father, please help us, Lord. Please help us. We know there are times in our lives where we're just beat up and we're tired. There is a time just to step out and rest. Jesus, you pulled your own disciples away for a time so that they could just rest away from the people. But they were still around one another. And then they got back into the fray, working, working to strengthen other believers. Help us, God, we pray in our life-on-life world here to make disciples of one another for your glory and for the joy of all peoples. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.